So it was 307 and 306, and I opened my eyes, and it said 310. So for two minutes, I watched anticipation. All right, so I said 310. Oh, I said to myself, I'll start talking again at 310. Right? I looked at the clock, 306. Four minutes to go. So what arose in my consciousness was anticipation. And what else could be there, really? So then I said, oh, this is the feeling of anticipation. So anticipation wanted to start at 307. And I cheated. I started at 309. <laughs> But, you know, it's a very simple example of what we mean by awakening to the way things are. Just just noticing. We're sitting here, and people are watching me. <laughs> so do I feel self-conscious? Yeah, a little bit. Do I think people are watching me? Yeah, they are. So that's natural, isn't it? It's natural, it arises. And there's the knowing, there's the awareness of that. So this is happening in awareness. So I, I, my apologies for starting a minute early to those who are running late. But this, this way of what I've been suggesting of, of awakening and opening the mind, rather than always being kind of caught up with the conditions of consciousness, is a, is a, is a, is a beautiful lesson to learn. And yet we have to engage with life. I have to be responsible for my duties and I have to take care of my body, it's getting older, and uh, to answer my emails, and so on and so forth. So the, the, uh, for me, the idea of Buddhism is that conventional life, the life of a social being in, in, a, in, a, in a culture, is the life of developing character. And character, I've been thinking a lot this past year, for me, the difference between character and personality. And it, it's just the way I'm defining it. Personality is something for me which is sort of, um, like I'm never going to be Ajahn Kusalo, or I'm never going to be Ajahn Cha or, or Ajahn Sumedho. I'll express myself in a kind of Vera Dhammo-ish kind of way, right? And sometimes I'll be depressed and sometimes I'll be happy, so sometimes the expression will come out different. Somehow, you know, personality is going to be pretty much Vera Dhammo-ish, right? So I think that's, I mean, that's, not a very good anthropological definition, but for me, that's like I, I get my head around it that way. And then the character for me seems to be what I've developed as a monk. And, 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 and character is more like the, the capacity like just to endure unpleasant states of mind or uh, physical pain, or the capacity to, be, to listen and be more aware of my fellow monks, or the capacity to... Um, be more forgiving, or all kinds of things like that, which, is, which to me seems like the development of character through situation, through life, through the ups and downs of, of normal living. And those, as I think most of you know, who are practicing Buddhism, those we call the paramitas, or the virtuous qualities. And, and that's, to me, growing up. You know, that's what growing up is about. Uh, so, like a sense of... of, of ethical responsibility that I have that I'm an ethical being that I have responsibility in my in my community for the animals and the water and the people and all of that uh, that's part of 
something that has grounded me in culture. So when I say this is happening in awareness, there's that part of Buddhism, but there's also the cultural, social, individual, familial part too. And if I just took this part of transcendence and I didn't include the other part, it would be really hard to understand. Because I can't just like if... if um, if something's happening in the monastery and there's some discord or some problem, it's my responsibility to deal with it. I can just say, oh, this is happening in awareness. That would be, you know, it'd be totally irresponsible. Downright stupid, really. Um, so I think it's very important in, 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 in Buddhist meditation to realize there is a social philosophy. You know, there is, there is a sense of, of being a, a cultural, social being and that those forms and structures are what kind of govern us, guide us, contain us, and which we develop character. And I, you know, I, 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 never, I never practiced as a lay person. I kind of did, but I just, when I saw the teaching, I saw, and I figured out you could be a monk, I just went for it, and uh, went to Thailand and became a monk. So I don't really, I'm not experienced in any skillful ways being a lay practitioner. I had no lay practice, really. Um, so I don't know how you, you guys do it, as it were. But I can only reflect back for you what, what, what monastic life has done for, in, in terms of character. And, and you, you can re, you know, consider in your own family life and uh, your vocation and, and, and your, your commitment to your kids and your parents and so on, how you develop some kinds of qualities. But... Like monastic life for me has been a vehicle in which I travel. Its great gift to me has been the chance to give up my preferences. You know, that doesn't sound like a gift, to give up your preferences. I had one preference, take it or leave it. You're going to be a monk or don't be a monk. So I chose be a monk. And then within that, I lost the freedom of preferences. Probably marriage <laughs> or kids. We can all see in vocation. Any commitment you make, if it's done skillfully, becomes a vehicle which both entraps you and frees you. And the freeing part for me was now I couldn't change the deck chairs on the Titanic anymore. I couldn't reorganize the diet to the way I want it to be. I couldn't just leave when I want. I could leave if I wanted, but I don't have to disrobe. I couldn't just go when I wanted to go. Uh, I couldn't tell Ajahn Chah, um, let's do Sanskrit chanting. Or let's do more meditation or let's do less meditation. Let's do more. I couldn't do that. I just had to surrender and give myself to the structure and form. And within that, there was resistance. There was fed upness. There was boredom. You know, this, you've ever had this stuff? Like we've all had. But what it gave me, it gave me a chance is to reference that as an object in awareness. If I would have had the chance to negotiate with Ajahn Chah, now listen Ajahn Chah, I'm a Western monk, I need yogurt. <laughs> or, or I need pizza with cheese. <laughs> uh, and Ajahn Chah actually said that. Oh yeah, you poor thing. <laughs> you know, you need a special diet. Oh, oh you want a soft cushion for sitting on. You don't like concrete? Oh, please. Yeah, you can have that too. Oh, a bigger bed. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you want air conditioning? 
Please, yeah. Imagine if he would have done that to me. Yeah, I'd be a total sport brat. But he didn't. I just made it. He said, well, just a monk. You're taller. You've got a bigger nose than the rest of us. But you're just a monk. Not in a dismissive way, but in an inclusive way. And he, he, he was including us into a way of life which we all participating in. So I didn't have the freedom to choose, but I had the freedom to watch my frustration of not being able to have the choices I wanted. And surely that's what one of the good parts of commitment. It's not always about getting what you want, but it's a chance to give up to something bigger than you and then watching within that your likes and dislikes. That's, to me, the beauty of commitment. So certainly I never, I never liked, you know, the idea that I liked monasticism for 45 years. Give me a break. Lots of times I'm, all, you know, I'm out of here. I'm going to jump the wall. I can't take this anymore. But then I thought, well, if you can't figure out here, where are you going to figure it out? You can't be free here. Why do you think you can do it somewhere else? And I had very good teachers, very inspiring teachers. This is very, very helpful. So just in terms of like developing character, uh, I, I, I had an undeveloped uh, emotional uh, personality. It wasn't developed. It wasn't skillful. I had a lot of adolescent um, attitudes and attitudes to work were not very good. And I wasn't, I wasn't slovenly and lazy, but there's just a lot of uh, bad habits that I had to come to terms with. And, and also just meditation. I've never meditated. And I'd go to Ajahn Chah and complain. He said, well, what do you expect? You haven't trained yourself. This is the result. Thanks. <laughs> Back to your kuti and meditate. But what else could he say? So, so then just like enduring my own complaining mind, say, blah, 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 it's too hot, there's too much mosquitoes, yeah, 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 the food's not good, just this constant droning of complaining in the mind. And then every now and then there'd be a chink of light. Oh yeah, this is an object of mind. What a relief. Awareness, awareness would arise. When I first came across the psychology of I came across a book, Psychology Awareness, here at U of T, a Danish friend who was doing a, a, some graduate work gave me this book on Psychology Awareness before I met Buddhism. That would have been 67-ish. Um, 66. Anyway, uh, it made sense. Awareness made a lot of sense. But I was, you know, it's kind of, a, I, I kind of, I would surface about every three months. <laughs> I come out from the delusions of my obsessions and every, every now and then I rise above and say, oh, this is what life is really about, and then I sink down again. So my capacity to be aware wasn't very, very strong. It wasn't very, very strong. And yet I saw that must be the key because all the conditions and all of that, I, really, I, I could see quite early on that it can't be about that. Because those are always changing and rearranging themselves. It must be something more profound. So I was lucky. I had that. I had that sense that awareness is a gateway to something more profound and deep. It is a gateway to deep silence and compassion. But how do you do it? You know, how does an untrained mind do it? And so the way you do it is one begins to develop character. And the character of Buddhism is not an end in itself. It's the method. So becoming a kind of neat character isn't the point of it. 
it's not becoming this saintly character. It's seeing that with patience as condition, I can bear a lot and hang in and notice that that which has a nature to rise has a nature to cease. With compassion as condition, I can accept a lot into the heart. I can process fear, aversion, and things like that. With uh, determination, with morality, uh, with honesty. You have to be very honest in this business, don't you? You know, if I, if I say to myself, well, I'm unhappy because of the diet, or I'm, say, in Thailand, because of the heat, or whatever, that's not really honest. It's true, in some sense, yeah. You sit on a concrete floor for five hours. Your butt starts to hurt, that's true. But what's the problem? And then and this is the way Ajahn Chah would teach. He'd say, when he was stronger, because he was paralyzed for 10 years, but when he was stronger, he would, he would, he would give three, four-hour talks. And, and I would understand like 20 minutes, and then I'd just be, I'd lose it. I couldn't concentrate. And all he was saying is, why do you suffer? And I was saying, shut up, please. I've had enough. <laughs> but he, you know, he wasn't interested in leaving. I just had to watch this, this, this sense of, I don't want to be here. I don't want to sit here anymore. Enough already. I want to meditate. <laughs> What's meditation? And just that, again and again, watching that perseverance, honesty, persistence, determination, just watching. What's the cause of suffering? I don't want life to be this way. I want life to be another way. And being entrapped in that and looking at it, I began to see, well, it's just pain. It's just, it's just 40 degrees, that's all. It's just heat. It's just mosquitoes. I began to see that the heart can have equanimity within discomfort. That took a long time. It took a lot of hours on concrete floors to begin to see that. But how would I have developed that sense of character if I would have just dodged the bullet as much as I could? You know, runaways, you know, just to kind of be comfortable all the time. So, I, I, you know, Ajahn Shah said, you know, you didn't come here for the food, you know. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. You're not going to get a frappuccino, sorry. <laughs> you didn't come here for comfort. Oh, really? And he'd constantly reflect on that for us. You say, you know, you're not, you're here to die. That's what he'd say. And you'd come to him and he'd say, you'd see these Western hippie kind of types with long hair. And oh, so why have you come? I've come here to meditate and get enlightened. I said, well, yeah, you come here to die. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> and what was, the, what was he doing? He was saying, you die, letting your, your desires die. And I, you know, I, at the time, it was, just, it was very, very difficult. Like, just like the food, the food is very, very difficult. So I had a lot of anticipation and hope that one day there'd be a good meal. <laughs> you know, just the kind of food that I couldn't digest, and then I got malnourished, and you know, all kinds of business. I think my complexion was green for two years, because the food is very coarse. Uh, I just watching that and just realizing, well, these people are poor. They're giving you the very best they can. It's not, you know, they're not hurting you. And you're just, you're, just, you're just used to a soft life, really. Because the people around me, the monks around me, they're very strong. Farmer people, tough, tough in a good way, tough in a good way. And I saw that, mm, yeah, these are good role models for me. But then like just having to, to, to watch the mind complain about food. And what the monastic system provided for me, it ref- 
provided reflections. So the reflection we had around food was um, to accept alms food of gratitude, to realize it is alms food, uh, to, to, to realize, you know, this is good enough for the day, uh, not to be hung up on diet, and, and just to reflect, it's, it's good enough. So that was, that was the mirror. And this is how much of Buddhism works. It, it offers mirrors of reflection. And those mirrors then really reflect back my attitude in this situation. So the mirroring that this reflection on contentment with little was offering was, it's good enough. You don't need your perfect Western diet. Huh? And then, but my mind, what my mind was doing, that's what the, the, the reflection was giving me. My mind was saying, but I do. I need brown rice. I don't need white rice. You know? And I'm not going to eat frogs, thank you very much. And then I see, well, it's your only source of protein, mate. So it's frogs or nothing. Um, I'll take the frogs. <laughs> or whatever, whatever they gave you. But you see the mind, the complaining of the mind, and then the reflection is contentment with little. And that began to be a training. I could train now. I could train and develop the character of contentment with little. Because now I could see. Now I no longer had the choice to just to do what I wanted to do, to buy what I wanted to do, I wanted to buy, to just, I just had to be content with what was offered. And what was offered was good in that culture. It was kind and fair and so on. It wasn't abusive, but it was very, very poor. And I began to see that it wasn't the problem. The food was my mind was the problem. My endless complaining and, 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 and feeling sorry for myself and all kinds of lovely states of mind. <laughs> and I'd see that. And I kind of look, I said, I'm tired of that rebirth. You know, I'm tired of that whining, complaining mind. And then, then I try to shift my mind to gratitude. I try to shift it to gratitude. Now, that wasn't the demand that Ajahn Chah was making on me. You know, you should be grateful, Viradamo. These lay people, they're working in the fields, and they were working in the fields, and I saw it. But it was of my own insight that gratitude is a basis for enlightenment. Whining is a basis for suffering and complaining. And yet the complaining was very powerful. It wasn't like I just get to the monastery, put on the robe, thank you, I'm enlightened now. <laughs> it doesn't work that way, does it? Marriage, I'm sure. You know, you're married now, we'll be happy forever. It doesn't work that way. So things came up. So that, that was quite a struggle the, the first few years. But teacher was very good. And, I, you know, there's a kind of sense of honesty there. And, and, and I saw that gratitude is a huge thing in the spiritual life. People ask sometimes, what, what should I be grateful for? It doesn't matter. Pick anything. <laughs> but just get the heart to gratitude. It doesn't matter, right? Just grateful for the sun, for a maple tree. Because once your heart gets to gratitude, then it doesn't want anything. Right? And when it doesn't want anything, it's available. And when it's available, it opens to the unconditioned, to the deathless. When your heart is constantly wanting something other than is here, wants something else all the time, it's not available because it's in conflict with the way things are. So we're trying to come to a sense of peaceful coexistence with the way things are. And yet live responsible lives. Right? You have lit. So, um, like, say, when I was... Uh, a younger monk at Chitters Monastery. I was asked to be the work monk. 
and we were rebuilding a Victorian mansion which had 14 chimneys in it, some of them 40 foot high. And I had like zero construction knowledge. And they asked me to be a work monk. Thanks. And because I was one of the, there were no senior monks around, I was sort of, it was like the, the volunteer system where, where you, where the teacher says, well, all those who would like to volunteer, please step forward. I haven't moved, but everyone else moved back. <laughs> and I'm in the soup here. And I found that really stressful because I didn't really know what the heck we're supposed to be doing. And I'd be reading books and asking people. But I had some facility for, for organizing and trying to facilitate other people. But it brought up a lot of, a lot of stress and, and, and uh, self-disparagement because I didn't think I was doing a good job. So I, you know, I could have said, no, I'm not going to do that. I want to meditate. That'd be a logical thing. I just want to meditate. I don't want to have any responsibility. But no, I think I saw that, no, there's also building of character. I can learn something now from this. And yeah, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about myself. So sometimes Buddhism seems like the real thing of Buddhism is doing this stuff. You know, sitting cross-legged, watching the breath and getting um, totally tranquil. It's nice, but all of life is a monastery, isn't it? And if you don't take it that way, then Buddhism becomes this kind of compartmentalized thing. I'll do work and get rid of that work, and then I'll do the real thing called meditation. But no, that would not be right. That would not be a spiritual life. So my model of, of, of Buddhism is that, that wherever you are is your monastery. Your family is your monastery. Your, your workplace is your monastery. And obviously, the environment in a monastery is, is designed for for enlightenment, I mean that's why I went for it, right? And and I'm sure working for um, Mr. Harper or someone like that's probably not designed for enlightenment. So there are challenges, there are different environments. But if one's attitude then is that that one's vocation, one's family is a chance for reflection, and rather than thinking that there's perfection in all those, and there's a chance to to, to live skillfully with good character, but also to try to come to the sense of this is happening in awareness, which isn't a, a negation of life or a running away from life, but it's a perspective from which right action can take place, right speech can take place, right livelihood takes place. This is happening in awareness. And if this lesson can be learned on a meditation cushion, it's the lesson that becomes very reportable is happening in awareness. And the way I, I entered, in, I have learned to enter into that, and I suggested today, was to enter into it through the cessation of thought. Not the annihilation of thought, but the cessation of thought, the end point of thought, when thought ends. Now, when I say cessation of thought, that sounds like you're never going to think again. No. Those interspaces between thought the moment, like let's say if I'm, if I'm meditating and my mind starts to complain about the monastery or something. Why do they do this and why do they do that? Some point, again, I've been saying this all day, but some point I notice there is complaining. And if I'm attentive to complaining, it's an object. And I notice the point where the mind isn't producing thought. It's just an object. And when I notice that... If I wait, if I wait, and I don't seek a compensation, another object, don't try to get rid of it, if I wait, in the waiting, 
I notice that the mind is the stillness always there. And then I say, yeah, but complaining is in awareness. It's happening in awareness. I do two things. I not only stop feeding the impulse to whine, complain, and so on, stop feeding that, but I also touch the unconditioned, the transcendent, the peace, the spiritual part of our life. I do two things. And that's what we mean by letting go. Now, letting go sounds like, I think Patrick, you, where's my Patrick? Patrick, one, hey, one, Patrick said he didn't like letting go, he liked letting be. That's a very good way to put it, just letting be. You know, complaining feels this way. Because if you let it be, what, how does complaining, say, as an example, it could be anything, how does complaining maintain itself through thought? Right, so, but if you notice the end of thought, then there's non-complaining. And then, yeah, 30 seconds later, I'm complaining again. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, oh, this is complaining. It's in awareness. And then it ceases. And then it starts up again. And then it ceases. But now, rather than emphasizing the complaining, you're emphasizing the cessation, the space of the mind. Now, this is important because sometimes we're trying to always be good. And so, rather than noticing thought cease, we get into self-arguments. You shouldn't complain so much. It's a really nice person. You know, they're a really good person. Yeah, but they're stupid idiots. I mean, they, how could they do it? Yeah, but you should stop complaining, you know. It's not, the Bhante said, don't complain. <laughs> but basically, you're just thinking. You're still in the drama, aren't we? You're still caught in self-view. And it goes on and on ad nauseum. But in a moment, we moment, oh, this is just complaining. It feels this way. We're back to the silence of the mind. This is happening in awareness. And if, if, those, if, those, if one honors, rejoices, um, realizes, makes positive the end of thought, then you begin to get a sense of what we mean by letting go. Not getting rid of, but letting go of the proliferation and the, and the resistance and so on. And that space is there all the time. I do it through listening. I do it a lot. I use listening a lot. So let's say I'm, uh, I'll be at my, in, in my kuti. I just sit in a chair, ordinary chair, and just listen. No, you know, no big, because meditation itself can seem like, oh God, here we go, got to do the dishes, got to get my emails, I've got to meditate. There's kind of another thing you're doing. But just, just like just, just being receptive and listening, like listening to the fire truck or whatever's going there. It's that way, isn't it? And it's not about the fire truck. The fire truck reminded me, oh, this is happening in awareness. And you begin to see that the object of meditation is not in the future. It's always here now, here now, here now. And that's what you begin to remember. You begin to have confidence in that, remember that. And then when the really difficult things come at you, something which blindsides you, what you have is a kind of intuitive foundation of character and like, like this, this kind of sixth sense of what to do. You just know what to do. Don't grasp, let go, be patient. All that comes in. It's not through language, through experience. It's like the carpenter. The carpenter just knows what to do. Or an athlete. Or a good chef. 
You know, they just know intuitively what to do. And this is our training, I think. This is our training. And if, you, if you, one learns to train in the ordinary, then that'll take care of the extraordinary. That, that's the way I see it. So that's why meditation is important in developing that sense of character of, of presence, knowing the way things are, and that plays itself out in ordinary life. If meditation is seen as just some kind of tranquilizing of the mind, then it's just sense deprivation, which is good. You know, you get a bit of a break, but there's no insight in that. There's no insight in that. Whereas insight knows, oh, that's, this is awareness. It can take all qualities, all qualities. It just knows. Thoughts? Anyone have any questions around that or those ideas or other questions? Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, but you know, health and financial difficulties and work challenges and loss of people in one's life. Those are kind of like big ones, yeah. Big ones. And I'm just wondering how you feel about how you think this is a training for training for life. When my. I was doing a retreat once in Toronto, and uh, we finished the retreat, and that, the next day I was to go to fly to Ottawa, and I got a phone call that evening, I think I think I was in a hotel, I forget where I stayed, Tulakua probably, and I got a phone call that my brother and mother were in a car that went over a, a railway crossing and got hit by a train. And that's all the, they were alive, but that's, you know, I didn't know how much injury they had or whether, my mind, my mind went crazy. I just went bananas. And I just, well, all I could do was walk, I couldn't get back, I couldn't reach them. So I just walked back and forth for like two hours. I was so, so upset in a way which was not, I couldn't just meditate and say, oh, life is this way. <laughs> It was very, very powerful. And I just had to process it by walking back and forth, walking back and forth, and walking back and forth. So when life's extremes come like that, then it seems to me you've just got to survive it. And if you've got a basis of awareness, you'll survive it without doing anything foolish with action or speech. Those are the kind of extremes. Sometimes... In, 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 in monastic life or work life or family life, there's something which is constantly irksome. It's not kind of life-threatening, but it's really kind of annoying. Those you can really work with. Those are the really good ones. So if you got someone at work or in the monastery, like the joke we have in the monastery is, how come 80% of my problems in life are caused by the guy next to me? <laughs> So we have it too. If there is something like that uh, in life, or or like a, a, a like like I suppose one of the great problems of aging is what am I going to do when I'm incapacitated, right? What am I going to do when um, I can't drive? What am I going to do when um, all the rest of it, right? Uh, you don't know. You don't know. So. Trust in Allah and tie your camel. But so tie your camel, but also 
develop the capacity to know the unknown. So we're always doing both. On one hand, we're always trying to cover our bases with the conventional responsibilities we have, financially. So in the monastery, you know, we have a, a, a really good treasurer, we have a good internal audit, we take good minutes, we do all of that, right? Uh, so having covered that as much as you can, there's always the unknown, always the unknown. And if one can look at the underlying mood of the mind, which is conditioning the narrative of worry, say, then what you want to do is to kind of really get a hold of that and understand it in a way which is uh, no longer the narrative. And that's hard to do. So um, like me, I've got a pretty good retirement system going. I've built a monastery. <laughs> and I'm trying to get some young monks in there. So, <laughs> But say like my mom, you know, right? like, like my mom, um, very old, worrying all the time. Is she going to be okay? And, and so on. And it was okay because I came and took care of her. But the more, the, the more one develops the capacity to be independent in awareness, if you see that that's your refuge and strength, then the external world becomes less threatening. You still have to deal with it. It becomes less threatening. So any situation which, social situation, family situation, situation of loss, is going to throw up material which is very difficult. So let's say uh, if, I get a, if I get a diagnosis of prostate cancer, you know, there's pretty good probability, getting old and so on and so forth. I don't know what my mind will do with that. I don't know what it'll do with that. It might, I might say, oh, great, I'm out of here. <laughs> or, or I might say, oh, no, I don't know. But what I do know is that when my mind starts to anticipate, I can know that. So the more I develop present moment awareness around the ordinary, the more the equipment is there to handle the extraordinary of loss, disagreement. So, so I develop, let's say, uh, one winter retreat. Uh, we had kind of screened the people who were going to stay for us at the winter retreat. And we ended up with a really difficult guy. Really, really difficult. And I, I don't respond well to, to people like that. I didn't use a bad word. Very good. Very mindful. <laughs> my mind, my, my, I wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that triggered in me quite a, a strong agitation. Yeah? And I knew that's a, that's a character part in me. This is a chance to work on it. So... There's in me which wanted just to clout the guy, right? Beat him up good and proper. And, and then there's the, the, the sweet and innocent me. May you be wild and happy. And, and I thought, no, no, no. You've got to make this conscious. You've got to make this, this, this version conscious. Let it become conscious. What's it really like? And so I'd, you know, I'd be in the meditation hall, and i just feel this feeling. Drop dead. <laughs> <laughs> Get out. Go away. You are a nuisance. You know, this strong, strong feeling of aversion. Uh, and I just bear with it. Just bear with it. Bear with it. Until I began to have a sense of centeredness. And then I began to see a suffering. I began to see the suffering of him. And then I was able to talk with him. We asked him to leave. Still asked him to leave because he was really not, not, not really good for the monastery. But my response then came from 
a lot of waiting, a lot of patience, a lot of practice. And then that builds up for all future possibilities of aversion. So the kinds of things we suffer from are not that many. Worry, uh, fear, uh, self-doubt, those kinds of things. And, and, and they manifest on all kinds of things. But if you can get a hold of, and this is the third foundation of mindfulness, just the fundamental sense of uh, dis- um, disease that's there, and say, this is what that fundamental sense of disease is like, then you've got the pra- then you've got the practice. And then practically, things work out the way they work out. You don't know. So to be realistic is good. You know, to have a good pension is good, and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and then the rest is, is kind of bigger than us, isn't it? It's more complicated than, than that. Like, 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 I know, like, with my mom... Um, I had to take her to an old people's home for two weeks. I hated it. But I, well, I was pretty burnt out and her, her legs were all swollen. I couldn't do the medical, medical anymore. I took her to an old people's home near the monastery. I went there every day from 12 to 6. I still hated it. I hated having her in there. And she had a hard time adjusting. And then I eventually got back home. And I was thinking, so what if you were in that old people's home? I think I could handle it. Right? I think I... I think I could do it. It's another monastery. <laughs> right? People are a bit slower. You know, and, 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 and uh, you know, they're getting around in all kinds of vehicles. But I thought, I could do this. I could do this. Yeah, that'd be all right. So I have a sense the more you develop this, this, this um, strength of, of knowing the way things are, you, you, you're very adaptable. You're able to do that. How I do in Syria, you know, I don't know. I, I, I probably just lose it completely. Or how I do um, as CEO of Apple, <laughs> heaven forbid. I, I don't know. I probably fall apart. They have to take me out in a, in a stretcher. So I'm not saying it's absolute. I'm, I'm glad for my good karma in this kind of way. So I've always had faith in, in doing my utmost in the worldly dharmas, get those right. But always, always the first priority is get this right. Get the sense of non-attachment. Get that going. Get that strong in all situations. And then hope for the best. Hope for the best. Any other questions or thoughts? Yes. Uh-huh. Right. In your body. Mm-hmm. So the question is about the our, our emotional life has both has strong bodily component and how to use that in processing emotions. Yeah. Um, so again, my my biggest lesson around that has been around fear, and I and I, I suffered a lot from stage fright uh, and all kinds of other shynesses, and uh, as I say to people. I know every flavor of fear. I know all the colors of the whole spectrum. And um, first of all, I, I, I began, I saw, at some point I saw that the problem with this emotion was the fear of it. So it was the fear of the fear that was the problem rather than the fear. So in general, what that means is the not wanting of a strong emotion, the negative emotions, that's the problem. That's the first problem. All right. 
So getting that in place is hard. Because even though someone says that to you, the intuitive response is, this thing's going to overwhelm me. i got to get rid of it or I'll never survive. So coming to a place that this is an object in awareness and it's okay is, is, the, is a, quite a big step. So with fear, they classically say, give the fear a cup of tea, welcome the fear, and tell the fear it can stay for a lifetime, and so on and so forth. Uh, but you see what the attitude is. It's welcome in, in something rather than getting rid of it. That's the first insight. And that is really what I think metta or, or goodwill is about. Goodwill, not just interpersonal goodwill, but goodwill to all things that arise. And my teacher, he often says, it all belongs. Right? So if you get that attitude, then you can say, oh, okay, it has arisen. This is here now. I wonder where it is in the body. I wonder if it's affecting my body. And any strong emotion is. It's constrict. It's affecting the heart chakra, your belly, your shoulders, your eyes, your breath. All of that's changing, and and in some way, um, tense probably. And what awareness is doing is trying to make conscious now fear in this case as physical energy body rather than narrative. So let's say I'm afraid. Like my my first retreat, I was petrified. I, I said, Ajahn Sama, you can't do this to me. You know, I've only got six years as a monk. You cannot make me teach a retreat. Yes, I can. <laughs> hey, what am I going to say? He said, oh, you probably know more than someone there. <laughs> I, was, I was very afraid, very afraid. So my, my, my performance minds, you know, looking up books and getting notes and, you know, but Ajahn Samina says, no, no, just be with the fear. Be with the fear. So then I, I look at it, and it's, what is it? It's sweaty before a talk. I'd have to go to the toilet four times. <laughs> really. And uh, I, when I get on stage, my heart would be pounding. My mouth would go dry. And all the beautiful things of fear. But I began to see that, though, that's a pattern with with this necessity to be up front as condition, fear arises. And I just got better and better at seeing, oh, what's the physical nature of fear? And, and so the, the, the habitual response of going to thought was changed to a skillful shifting of attention to, so what does it feel like? And we can say, oh, fear feels this way. Now that put me in a position where the fear was no longer being fueled through thought. But it still had the momentum of what we call karma. For whatever reason, my psyche produced this amount of fear. I don't know why, but there it was. And that was just the kind of karmic result of my life. So I had to bear with that. And so what I found is, uh, as I began to just know it physically, and I wasn't fueling with thought, the, the power of the fear itself, or the power of the karma of fear, began to dissipate. And as that began to dissipate, then my confidence in this became stronger. This does work. This does work. And, and then every now and then I'd think I was past fear. You know? Yeah, I haven't got any fear. And then lo and behold, a funeral would come. There'd be 400 crying people. <laughs> and I'd be fearful again. I said, oh no, I thought I got past that. Uh-uh. Fear feels this way. Right? And, and my classic, and 
those of you who've done retreats with me, excuse me for giving the story for the 20th time. I had my my dad had died in '87, and I was I stayed with him. I helped him when he was dying, and stayed with my mom. And then I went back to New Zealand, and I was part of a ecumenical meeting, and I had to give the Buddhist piece, and it was a short piece, two three minutes, and, was, and I was very right on because my dad had just died, so it was very strong talk, and everyone said, "Ooh, we like this guy." So they said, "Would you give the keynote address next year?" So oh, sure, big mistake. <laughs> Next year, Auckland, uh, the main ch- big church in Auckland, big hall full of people. I get a panic attack. Uh, it was like it was like going to the guillotine. It was you, you don't know how awful that was. Here I am, and now the venerable Viridhamma will give a talk on peace. I was petrified. I was, I'm, and the only thing I did as I managed to say something, it was like it was like being dragged into hell. It was awful. So I give this talk, and I'm trying to get past the fear. And, you know, when you're trying to get past the fear, you, you sometimes are aggressive. So I give an aggressive talk at a peace meeting. <laughs> you have to be peaceful. So, so then, then I'm, I'm in, the, in the van with Lama Sumpton, and I was staying at a Tibetan monastery, and Lama Sumpton is a very Asian way. He kind of he says, you know, Buddhism's about peace. <laughs> But I did it. You know, I knew, you know, even though I got heavy with myself, you idiot, you're a dumb, blah, blah, blah. I, I did get on that stage and I did face it. And why did that come? I don't know. It's just like panic attack just came up. It's part of my karma. Uh, but I was careful to take on big engagements like that from then on. <laughs> so you don't, you don't know the intensity of the things, why they come up. But you have a reference of the body. You have a reference of awareness. And that's an intuition that begins to function even in, in very, very extreme things like that. And most of life my, you know, hasn't been that extreme. But now any nuance of worry or fear, I know it very well. I can see where it's going and I can just go, I go to the heart chakra. I can, I can abide there now. When I wake up in the morning, I say, so what's the mood of the mind? And I, bring, I try to make alive the heart chakra. And that to me always connects me with life. So I've learned a lot about being a human through the the the, um, the energy body, really, rather than just through uh, ideals. Because the ideals sometimes it would really mess me up. I have to be something. But I found that by being aware of the heart chakra uh, helped me to get through fear and anger, and then the the the, the, the falling away of layers of of that tension opened up to something which is very contact, in tune with the way things are. They're very helpful. So the body for me has been very, very instructive that way. And it's given me a vehicle for living through some of these difficulties, you know, passing through them. And it's never, it's not something that you're doing to get rid of the fear. That's hard too. You know, you, I'll look at you, body, if, if the fear you go away. That's not compassion. Compassion is always allowing this thing to be the way it is. All right? Okay. Uh, any others? Jim. No, not Jim. You know, uh, Ajahn, Jim. the reason why courage has the word Puru is heart. Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I never thought. That's what you're yeah, that's true, isn't it? Yeah. Never thought of that. Yeah, courage isn't like being 
fearless, is it? Courage is, is just an awakening to the whole package that you have to deal with. <laughs> and, and you know who has it easy? I guess a chance that would used to say, rich people suffer the suffering of rich people, poor people suffer the suffering of poor people. You know, it's teenagers suffer the suffer of teenagers and 68-year-olds suffer the suffer of 68-year-olds. We all have some kind of a program which we have to deal with. And the more we see that as, that's our curriculum. That fear was my curriculum, wasn't it? Rather than, if I didn't have fear, I'd be happy. Right. Of course. If I didn't have fear, I'd be happy. <laughs> it doesn't help, actually, does it? But, no, fear is my teacher. So this is the irony of the spiritual life. It's the very thing which impacts you the most, that preoccupies most of your mental space, is the very thing that is going to free you. So 50% of my mental space is occupied by fear. I could liberate fear. Hey, I got 50% more space. <laughs> it's not a bad deal. Um, just to let you know that uh, I live in a monastery, Tisarana Buddhist Monastery. It's up near Perth. We have a limited space for guests, men or women. So if anyone would ever, li ever like to come up and stay with us, you're welcome to stay. Uh, life in the monastery is very simple. We have a five o'clock meditation. We have breakfast at seven. We have a work period from... 8 till 11, and we have our own space for meditation and uh, study, a cup of tea or something at 5, and meditation at 7. And we do that most days. It's a very simple life, but uh, it, it's, quite a, it's a quite a good way to pick up Buddhism, not just as a retreat, because many of us are used to a kind of retreat uh, way of practicing, this is more like ordinary life, but with a lot of space, a lot of space in it. So you're always welcome to come up. Uh, otherwise, uh, just come for a visit if you're in the area. Okay, I'll, I'll, I think I'll, I'll leave it there.